In this episode of Spirit Stories, our guest is Venerable Chandavshudi, also known as Ayachanda, who first encountered meditation and the spiritual path when travelling through Asia as a young woman. This led to several years of going on and supporting retreats in India and Nepal. Whilst the yearning to live the Buddhist monastic life intensified, she found that opportunities for women to lead the meditative monastic life were few, until finding out about a chance to ordain with Sayadaw Ul Panyajota in rural Burma. The meditative life suited Venerable Chandar very well, but four years into the Burmese climate, diet and parasites took toll on her health and she decided to return to the West. A chance encounter led Venerable Chandar to the teachings of Ajahn Brahm and the opportunity to practice and take higher ordination at Dhammasara Monastery in Western Australia in 2014. Now she is blazing a trail for women monastics by leading a project to start a monastery for Bhikkhuni Sangha in the country of her birth, the United Kingdom. Venerable Chanda joins us now to share her spirit story. Welcome to Treasure Mountain, Venerable. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. (laughs) (laughs) If we could turn first to your early life, could you tell us about where you came from originally and what were the circumstances in which you first became interested in the spiritual path? So I came from uh, Chesterfield in northern England. It's a small town and um, I guess as a teenager it felt pretty dull and not a lot of different opportunities to choose from. So I think the first yearning for me to sort of explore my inner world came in my teens um, when I felt the pressure of having to decide what to do later on in my life. You know, we had to decide about the subjects that we specialize in and going to university. And I just saw this kind of trajectory ahead of me that didn't seem to make a lot of sense because I hadn't yet answered this um, very foundational question as to why I'm actually here. Um, and this was really burning inside of me. Mm. Um, and I needed an answer to that. No one around me seemed to, um, perhaps my best friend had a similar feeling, but no one else around me could give guidance. And I just had this instinct that I would need to leave my home country to discover more about the world and more about myself. Wow. And that's, a, I think a lot of people can uh, identify with that experience of being a teenager and just having so many questions and <laughs> not really knowing where to fit in. Anyway, how was it that you first discovered meditation and how did it change you? So I traveled to India when I was about 19 with the aforementioned best friend, who's um, now one of my trustees on the project, actually. Um, So we set off together on a journey and it was completely open-ended. We didn't have even a return ticket and about (laughs) £250 in traveler's (laughs) checks on each of us. And... Obviously, that was probably, people say to me now that that was a brave thing to do, but at the time, it just felt like a necessary thing to do. Um, And it was really a time of exploration and um, learning about myself and about life. 
And so from the time I arrived in India, I could sense that the, the society, the culture was very, very different. And people seemed to have um, an intuition, maybe even a connection to something much bigger than themselves. And there was not so much emphasis on the sort of trivial, petty concerns that people in the Western world can sometimes have when we actually have all the basic comforts in place. We don't have to worry about what we're going to eat, you know, or um, there being food on the table at all. So I already had a sense that this was a very spiritual place. And then throughout the course of my travels, I heard about meditation retreats where you would remain with yourself in a small room, eyes downcast for 10 days, and simply take a journey into the world of the body and mind. And um, because of these kind of burning questions in my teens and the sort of depression that I also experienced due to not having the answers, not knowing why I was here, the idea of being with my mind and seeing what was really going on was very um, compelling for me. So I took a, a retreat, first of all in Thailand actually, um, with two Western teachers who trained with Goenka and also Ajahn Buddhadasa. And it was everything I'd been looking for. It sounds strange to say that at the age of 20 or 21, that you know I'd been searching for so long, but that's how it felt. Um, perhaps it's you know a, a suggestion that there was an intuition about past lives, but it just felt like this was finally what I was trying to sort of express to myself for so many years. And the Buddha's teachings just fit. They just made sense. Um, and I made a determination at that point to, to try my very best to pursue them for the rest of my life. Wow. Wow. But it's, it's amazing like that you actually came to that point where you found something that fitted for you. I guess it was like coming home in a sense. Yeah. 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 It was. Um, now, I believe that you spent, you actually followed that through and, and immediately that meant going on retreats and also supporting retreats and you stayed in Asia mostly is that correct? That's right yeah so I knew that I would need more support to establish a daily practice which was very much um, emphasized and I also wanted to know more about the teachers of the teachers of the first retreat so I went to India and I started to sit courses with SN Goenka known as Goenkaji to his students and he comes from a lineage that's a uh, from Myanmar, um, a Vipassana lineage where we practice uh, breath meditation and then looking at the body and looking at the sensations in the body in terms of their characteristic of impermanence primarily. And um, so I started to practice on these retreats and very much wanted to make it a part of my daily life. Um, but I knew that I would need more support. So I started to give service on the same retreats. And this was a really wonderful way of not getting into the trap of me and my meditation and my progress, which I think many of us can fall into, you know, and still repeatedly as a nun also, this is a, a danger on the way, you know, our own journey becomes so important almost to the exclusion of others. So for me, I'm very grateful that service was always emphasized as part of the path. Oh, you're right. Well, and that's actually... Uh, often the Buddha said that, you know, generosity and kindness are such a great support for our own spiritual progress. And as you say, it stops us thinking about our own little self-centred, you know, <laughs> yeah. our world. Yeah, that's, so that's right. great. That's right. Did you um, do any other types of meditation at that time or were you mostly focused on the, like, the Goenka method? I was actually entirely focused and committed on the Goenka method because it just gave me such enormous benefits in my life. Mm. Um, 
And it was really clear when you close your eyes and go inside. And I started sitting on much longer retreats for 30 days, 45 days. That suffering is caused by the way we use our mind primarily. Of course, there's something inherent to human existence in that we are bound to suffer. You know, and at a deeper level, the Buddha said the body and mind phenomena in and of itself is um, subject to suffering. But um, along with that understanding, a great amount of equanimity started to develop um, through the practice. And this had enormous benefits in my daily life. I found that I was much less reactive when things didn't go my way. Or, for example, when I was serving a retreat, if somebody would approach me feeling agitated or angry and upset, often they would project that onto the course managers or the teachers. And I would be able to sort of feel the experience in my body that that anger in another produced and stay embodied and stay equanimous to that understanding and noticing that it was changing all the time. So there was far less um, solidity, far less to cling to and to hold on to and um, basically get myself wound up about. So um, it was really wonderful. I found that there was so much more balance and groundedness in my life, and that enabled me to be more present for others, no matter how they were feeling. Um, Mm. And as you were saying, you know, the service, the generosity, the kindness is so much a foundation of the path. But um, also my teacher, Goenkaji, would um, emphasize that it's an outcome as well. Like one of the signs Mm. of someone progressing well on the path is a feeling of gratitude and a wish to serve. And so this would always be very instructive to me in terms of whether my practice was moving in the right direction. And I found that the more I practiced, the more capacity I had to give to others. Wow. That's a pretty wise point and Mm. uh, often one that's often missed in the West, I think, in terms of uh, Western Buddhism. Yeah, yeah. Um, Around this uh, period of time uh, when you were in Asia, especially in India and Nepal, you had that yearning to live a meditative monastic life. It was forming, it was growing. But finding a place to ordain as a nun, that wasn't so easy. Could you tell us about that challenge and how it shaped your journey? Sure. Yeah, it was, um, I guess I didn't know anything different at the time about, um, you know, the fact that it may have been easier if I was a male, you know, to find a monastery. Um, So I just took it as a a journey, as an opportunity to keep practicing and keep asking, keeping my eyes open to any opportunities that should arise. So I saw that period of time, which ended up being around 10 years, as a sort of training, a sort of preparation for monastic life. But yes, you're right that the... um, the calling to ordain was becoming stronger and stronger. And especially on the long retreats, it started to get to the point where I didn't see the point in actually coming out again because the process was going really well and I was learning more and more about the practice and going deeper inside my mind. And the craving to kind of engage in worldly activities, especially the world of relationships and sensuality, was just getting so undermined I didn't have that kind of impetus to go back out and and sort of dirty the mind that was getting Mm. more and more contented, more and more um, satisfied within itself. Um, So I would ask around, I would ask some of the teachers if they knew places to ordain. And luckily I was in Asia where there is an appreciation of the path of renunciation. And so nobody would actually try to put me off. Um, I have heard that sometimes in the West, teachers recommend that people practice as lay people and and develop virtue and, you know, a really good foundation in that way. But my teachers did sort of look quite happy when I mentioned about ordination. So it was just a matter of finding the right time and place. 
And uh, this happened actually when I was in India. And uh, I was speaking to one of my friends who just heard about a monastery in Burma opening up. And the teacher there had also practiced in the same tradition, but was known to be very well advanced in the path. And it was one of those intuitive things where my heart just leapt and knew that this is it. This is my teacher. This is my opportunity. And I can remember being on a little bus in India and practically jumping up and down on my seat with joy. Um, yeah, it was it was really special because of the long kind of um, training and also weight that had gone before. So I think for women, you know, because it is much harder and there's so few opportunities, and this is in Asia, right? The land of Buddhism, <laughs> Burma and Sri Lanka, still there are far less opportunities. That when we actually come across those opportunities, we're very unwilling to let them go. We tend to really mm. um, treasure them and make the best of them as far as possible. So mm. that's what I tried to do. Yeah, yeah good point. Now. This uh, step to ordaining, is it's a pretty big step anywhere, but uh, you're off to rural Myanmar. It's a very different standard of living. It's a very different culture of the mm -hmm. food. What was it like uh, practising um, in rural Myanmar? Yeah. Well, um, bearing in mind that I'd already lived in Asia by now for 10 to 12 years. So the first time I ordained was about 10 years into uh, my life in Asia in 2004. And the second time was in 2006. I had to finish um, some worldly um, things up first, which was basically a degree that I'd started as a backup. So um, I was already very accustomed to life in Asia. And I actually felt much more comfortable there than when I would come back home in the West. Um, mm. The only time I'd lived in England as an adult since leaving at 19 um, was to study Indian medicine. And so even there, all my teachers were Indian and half of the course uh, students were Indian. And we lived in a very um, multicultural area of London near Shepherd's Bush. So I actually felt quite comfortable. And being young, you know, your body is a little bit more resilient so unfortunately, I had, you know, got parasite infections at least two or three times a year throughout those 10 years in India. So being in rural Burma did exacerbate those um, gastric issues. Uh, but for me, it was the closest thing I could get to feeling like I was back in the time of the Buddha. You know, the simplicity mm. of the life, um, the way that that simplicity and even austerity uh, kind of points us towards finding happiness within ourselves, within our hearts. Uh, I found it really conducive and almost magical in terms of the atmosphere. You know, Burma's really a land of Dhamma and a land where, <clears throat> you know, there are monasteries on every street corner. You can mm. go into town and um, just see long lines of monastics, monks and nuns on arms round in the city. Um, so it felt like a really incredible place. Uh, and an incredible blessing to be able to ordain there. Um, unfortunately, as you were saying earlier, I did get sick in a more chronic, long-term way. So that was the main problem living there. And the heat mm. was really intense. You know, we'd literally be sitting there sweating all day and night. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Um, and I do want to ask you a little bit about that because I guess this, and I mean, other people come across these difficult um, turning points in their spiritual journey uh you said earlier that you know you found that you really loved practicing there and it felt so authentic as you said mm. like the time of the buddha 
And I believe that you, you, your early decision was like, this is it, I'm staying here. This is, I'm going to practice <laughs> till I go the whole way kind of thing. But at the same time, you were having, you know, your, your body just wasn't well suited mm. to the conditions in some ways. You had, you had yeah. these parasites, as you say, and the heat and so forth. And that's really putting you in a difficult position. Yes. Uh, if you stay, you're not going to get any better. It's going to get worse. But at the same time, you love the place. Yeah. Uh, how did you navigate this, this dilemma? Thank you. Thank you for that really sensitive observation because it was actually very, very difficult um, <clears throat> to navigate. And I guess initially um, I felt that my practice was almost strong enough to put those health concerns to the back of my mind. Um, and so perhaps in that sense, I almost neglected my physical health because I didn't really see what I could do at that time. So, and there was so much joy and happiness. I was really thriving on the path. Um, and it took probably about four years. I did try to get my health sorted out. We went to hospitals actually in, in uh, Thailand. So I actually got to travel to Thailand a couple of times to go to kind of big, uh, efficient hospitals. The healthcare system in Myanmar is really quite poor. I saw a list actually of countries um, graded in terms of the health systems and Burma was the worst in the world. Can you imagine? Wow. Even yeah, below wow. sort of Cameroon and all kinds of other um, places so that was difficult you know in Myanmar to get the proper treatment and uh, try as I might nothing would really help so I continued to practice but it came to the point that I realized this wasn't sustainable in the long run and it did cause a lot of um, inner conflict because I had made this internal commitment to being in Myanmar you know to become my home I tried to learn the language and you know, because my teacher only spoke Burmese. So I tuned up to all the instructions and um, I felt like I was very much under his wing in terms of um, mentorship. So it was quite heart-wrenching to have to leave. But this is around the same time, luckily, that uh, during these trips overseas to try to get better, someone had given me a CD of Western um, monastic talks and I have to admit to putting it in the corner of my room thinking, oh, these kind of Western talks, they're very <laughs> diluted. It's not the real thing. You know, my teacher's enlightened. And, <laughs> you know, and in, in the West, people just talk about getting on together in community and they don't talk about the deep stuff, you know. So this was my sort of prejudice, my bias towards uh, Western monks. <laughs> and, uh, but one day I just picked up this CD and by somebody, Brahma Vamso, and I thought, okay, I'd never heard of him put this CD on and um, the talk was on a subject that um, I don't really listen to that much about body contemplation, understanding the kind of, um, sometimes it's known as the repulsive aspect of the body, but the way that he spoke about it gave it such a deeper meaning for me and I was really quite blown away. The second talk I heard was about um, meditation off the cushion but he mentioned that normally he likes to talk about jhanas and enlightenment and those kind of things so again I was my mind was captivated and the teachings just went straight to the heart and I knew that you know sometimes you listen to a talk and you feel that the person speaking is speaking from a very very deep experience of the same and it has a very different quality and mm. perhaps because I was engaged in sort of up to 14 hours meditation every day and very, very sensitive, um, you know, 
to uh, the teachings perhaps that they almost landed in my body and mind as an instruction that took me deeper and that really resonated with where I was at. So it was a very strong kind of sense that I have to find this teacher, whoever they are. I didn't know who uh, this person was, um, but it came at the same time that I was trying to make a decision on what to do next. Uh, okay. That brings us to our next uh, question, which is um, uh, so you, after a couple of years, you actually got the opportunity to go to Damasara and practice there. And then I think it was a couple of years after that in 2014 that you were able to uh, take ordination, higher ordination as a bhikkhuni yourself. Um, now, by the time you were able to take full ordination, you'd been practicing uh, as a monastic for several years. Um, I think over 10 years, I believe. Um, but how did taking the higher ordination as a bhikkhuni change your life? Great. And, what, Great and why did you do it? Why did I do it? Yeah. Why wouldn't you do it is the obvious response. Why wouldn't Good you answer. do it? Because <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, the path of renunciation is such a deep inner calling. And, you know, I had been uh, waiting for the first opportunity to ordain for 10 years. So when I ordained the first time, it was never a half an ordination in my mind. It was a full renunciation. Mm. You know, I was on the other side of the world for my family. I'd already been moving in that direction for so long. So it was just a natural kind of affirmation of the way my life had already become. So I think, you know, it's really important to say that because some people might think that people who are not fully ordained aren't fully committed. But in most cases, if not every single case, it's often because they simply don't have the opportunity. I mean, you don't hear about many monks who stay on, eight, on 10 precepts or on eight precepts for their whole life. If the bhikkhu ordination is available, then they, they take the bhikkhu ordination. They take that opportunity offered by the Buddha. And in the same way, when I first heard that um, this teacher, who by now you will know is Ajahn Brahm, when I first heard that not only were his teachings so deep, but that he was promoting and supporting bhikkhuni ordination, full ordination for women, my heart just leapt toward the idea. It was like, oh my goodness, maybe this is a real possibility for me. So in terms of the renunciation, honestly, it didn't feel like a very big difference. Um, I had been ordained by them for about eight years. Uh, yeah, about eight years. And so it just felt like, I guess the main difference was that I was now officially entering the Sangha because until you take the full ordination, you're not actually a member of the worldwide Sangha with a recognized platform of ordination. And um, there's a really beautiful line that we chant in the ordination. It says, um, may the Sangha lift me up out of compassion. And the word used mm. is actually anukampa. May they lift mm. me up out of compassion. And it really did feel that I was being invited into this family of practicing monastics, into this international sangha where my ordination was, you know, equivalent to everybody else's, which means that you can go to any place and join in the monastery um, practices, including the patimoka, chanting the rules of training, along with other monks and nuns, nuns for nuns and monks for monks. Um, so that was very special. And yeah, I guess also the robes that I would be wearing then were the kind of traditional robes, uh, the paddy field robes that again, go back to the time of the Buddha and the alms bowl. So all these things are signs of renunciation. And that just 
um, reminds you of the step you've taken and reminds you that you are, um, it's something to live up to. And it's something that generates a feeling of gratitude every day because as an arms mendicant, you're dependent on the charity of others. So that inspires you to practice as well as you can and to be worthy of the robes. Mm. Uh, I'm curious, uh, because even now there's still a little bit of controversy around the bhikkhuni ordination, do you feel that there's been it's been a challenge to be a bhikkhuni or do you feel that you've been really well supported or, or maybe a bit of both? What's been your experience yeah, so far? Yeah, yeah, they do say there's a controversy, and I don't know in whose mind that controversy exists. <laughs> I don't know why we're fabricating it because you know everything is actually mind created. So you know True. you can choose to have a controversy about it, or you can choose to rejoice. I'm not quite mm. sure. I think there are a lot of politi- politics involved in in the controversial side that I try to just distance myself from. But unfortunately, you're right that um, that controversy and that lack of acceptance by some more conservative sectors of Theravada Buddhism does create difficulties for women because we don't find that the conditions for living a monastic life are easily attainable. So because I ordained in uh, Perth, where a lot has been done to support both sanghas, the monks and the nuns, um, I did have suitable conditions in the beginning, although I have to admit that um, I didn't have as much access to the teachings and especially to my teacher's teachings as I would have wished for. Um, But that's also because the bhikkhuni sangha, the non-sangha, is younger and we don't have so many enlightened nuns simply because we haven't had as many opportunities to practice. Um, So then after about two or three years in Perth living at Dhammasara Monastery, uh, Ajahn Brahm asked me if I would consider going back to England and trying to start something for bhikkhunis there because there's absolutely nothing in this in my own home country, his home country too, for women to take the full ordination. And uh, I don't know if it was a bit of a joke between us that, oh, just let's give it a go. I don't think we really felt like it would be a serious thing. <laughs> but somehow or other, like I was uh, devoted enough to give it a go, you know, out of gratitude to Ajahn Brahm. And uh, bit by bit, we have generated some support, but it's been really, really difficult. And I do think the general um, disposition of the main dominant sangha there towards bikinis, which is one of basically not approving our ordination, not supporting it, uh, does make things very hard. Um, you know, it's almost every supporter that I have in England has I'm in a personal, some kind of personal relationship with, like I've had to cultivate a relationship and, and, um, and teach a lot. You know, it's not as though the support that's forthcoming simply because I'm a bikuni. Um, it's as though we have to really prove our worth. That's interesting. I mean, um, if you're in a Buddhist country, mm. Uh, like a monk in a Buddhist country is going to get support and reverence straight away. Yes. If they come to the West, they've got to kind of earn it a little bit. But it sounds to me like as a bhikkhuni, you've got to like go two, three times the the, <laughs> the, the distance to get that kind of support. Yeah. Is, is that, am I, am I on the right track with saying Absolutely. that? Absolutely. I'm not sure how many more times difficult it is. It could be up to a hundred times or a thousand <laughs> times <laughs> without wanting to sound like poor me because I think, you know, it makes you strong. But um, what I've noticed in, in monks' communities, even in the West, if especially, I mean, for someone like Ajahn Brahm, he's obviously worked very hard and he's leading a community. But 
there are other monks in the Sangha who don't have to put themselves out there. They can live a very simple life. You know, not every monk has to be an administrator, a teacher, um, someone who talks with the guests, someone who does the website, someone who uploads the YouTube talks. Whereas for nuns, we have to do all of those things to start our own places. So it's like you have to, uh, if you're not good at everything, you have to learn to be at least okay in order to survive, especially when establishing our own places. So yeah, I think for monks, they're stepping into an established system that's understood by Buddhist communities. Mm. I mean, how many times, for example, do you hear teachers refer to stories of the wise old monk or, you know, refer to mm. great ajans from the forest tradition. There's barely any talk about the wise old nun. That just isn't really a thing. It's more like the old spinster. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, that's true. And I think it's, a, it's very sad because mm. that wasn't the way it was to begin with. Uh, Correct. We, 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 we know that there were enlightened nuns. We know that they were well supported. Um, and it was something that was lost, f- and it's yeah. that that in itself is a great shame. And why wouldn't you want to bring it back to the way things were uh, as the Buddha established them? Exactly, exactly. Mm. Yeah, but it does sound like it's it's quite a bit challenge, uh, although I dare say a very worthwhile one. Yes, um, I do want to take just one little step back here and uh, go to that point where Ajahn Brahm. Uh, suggested this idea of starting uh, the Kuni Monastery in the UK. And I, I, it's interesting to hear you say he was joking about it because you never know. He may have just been joking about it to begin with, doing <laughs> a jump around. But he does that. Um, but what were, your, what were your first impressions of this idea? And, uh, you know, that's a pretty daunting kind of uh, proposition, I would have thought. Yes, absolutely. As I say, I mean, at the time that we discussed it, it was one of those times where everything's so wonderful and you're so supported and this is great. I'm going to get to work with my teacher. So it was kind of like, oh, yeah, why not try? And he said, you know, if it doesn't work, you can always come back. But when I actually got back to England, I had my return ticket to Perth and I had a visa extension in process to continue training in Perth. And at some point, it started to dawn on me that if I was going to do this, I would have to cancel that visa and stay in England where there was literally no support. And even my parents made it clear at that time that I couldn't just stay with them. And I, of course, didn't want to either as a monastic. It wouldn't be appropriate longer term. Um, So I have to admit there was a lot of terror in my stomach and there were several nights that I didn't sleep well at all. I was thinking, oh, my goodness, what do I do here? Do I go back to Perth and, you know, and sort of try and start things up from a distance or do I just plunge ahead? Um, So I spoke to Arjun Brown and I said, look, if we're going to do this, then I need you to come over to England and do some teaching and sort of, you know, spread the word because I don't have any support networks over here. And also I need you to, would you be um, the advisor to the project? Because you already advise me anyway, there wouldn't be any difference really. It would just be a continuation of the teacher-student relationship and you could advise me on um, setting things up. And to my surprise, he immediately said, yeah, sure. And anyone who knows Ajahn knows that he already has many, many responsibilities and he's not uh, that keen to take on new things. But obviously this meant a lot to him, Um, so Mm. much so that there was no hesitation in his mind at all. So suddenly I had my teacher coming over sort of eight months later and here I was in England with nothing, no support, nowhere to stay. And I had to basically arrange a tour. (laughs) 
<laughs> as well as figure out how I was going to get my next meal. So, <laughs> so this is why I had a few sleepless nights uh, and a couple of friends came to the rescue and told me they were renting a little cottage in Lanzarote, an island out of Spain <laughs> in the Atlantic Ocean where they were going to have a little retreat and they invited me to come along. So I had a, um, a non-self retreat. I'm not going to call it a personal retreat, an impersonal retreat for, <laughs> for three weeks in Lanzarote on this little island where I could gather myself and let things sink in. And I think at that time I wrote a few emails to Ajahn about sort of what name we might call ourselves and just very basic preliminary things. Uh, and we took it from there. So, <laughs> And after that, uh, the coronavirus came and no one could travel anywhere. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was a few years you, later. <laughs> yeah, how did you find, because um, how long have you been in the UK now? So um, this happened in early 2016. So that was when we organized Ajahn's first tour. And uh, I still remember that year, we had to sort of set ourselves up to have a website, to have an organization, find trustees, etc. And I still remember when the first £10 came into our account and I was like, oh my goodness, somebody knows about us. They've donated <laughs> £10. It was amazing. Um, so that was the first year. And since then, after the tour, we did get a very generous donation from an overseas supporter who wanted to remain anonymous, which was incredibly touching. And that was the time I realized this could, well, this had to happen, actually. So suddenly the responsibility hit home. Um, so between 2016 and 2019, I was still um, moving from supporter to supporter to uh, depending on them, basically, for my food and my board uh, and trying to work on the project. And I was also coming to Perth every year for the Rains Retreat. So every year for three months, I had supportive conditions, I had the teachings, and I could just relax. Um, and it wasn't until 2019 that we were in a position to rent our first um, place, our first vihara, and that was in Oxford. So the beginning of 2019, about a year and a half before the corona, actually only about a year before the corona pandemic hit. Mm. How, how did you endure the, the pandemic? Because uh you still don't have your own monastery. You've got a vihara by this stage, but uh, that's it was quite hard in the UK. Um, yeah. Ajahn Brahm's not going to be able to come and visit. How did you navigate that? Yeah, that was tough. And I guess in the beginning, I was a little bit shocked that I wouldn't be able to get to Perth, but I made a decision fairly quickly, I think partly influenced by watching what was happening in other parts of the world, that um, I would just reflect on my good fortune for having a safe place to stay um, compared to many people that were struggling in much more desperate ways. I remember seeing um, reports in the news about India and about people just be having to go home. And some of these people were sort of uncontracted workers in the cities and they'd have to literally walk on foot, maybe mm. hundreds if not thousands of miles to their homes you know, starving, like not getting enough water on the way and obviously very vulnerable to catching the disease. So I just felt so grateful. And it was almost like a conscientious choice to look at what I had to be happy about. And at that time, we were still renting the Vihara and I just felt so protected and so blessed to be there. Um, the other decision I made was to move the teachings online 
which was uh, not very obvious. <laughs> My first <laughs> instinct was to just have a retreat. But uh, I grappled with the Zoom thing and decided to do about two or three sessions a week. And we grew an online community, which has been a massive uh, boon for the project and extremely rewarding for me. Even yesterday, I was doing my last uh, online teaching before I'm going to enter a long retreat. And uh, there were about 30 people coming, uh, the same kind of core group, but different people from all over the world, people from America, from Perth, from Thailand, from all over the place. And, uh, and so this has been really wonderful in supporting myself, in feeling that I have something meaningful to offer, and also in supporting a community. So... That's basically how we did it. And from that group that I was teaching online, um, people offered to basically provide the weekly uh, food that I would need. And I've had to make allowances that, are, that the Buddha very compassionately gave in the Vinaya um, to cook for myself. So people have been sending like weekly shopping to the monastery. And then I've been basically doing that for myself in order to stay safe. Um, and the Buddha did say that in times of famine and danger, uh, I allow you to do this. So, yeah, right. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Okay. Um, if, is, can other people join in on these uh, online teaching sessions? How, how would they do that? Yeah, they can. Um, as I say, at the moment, I'm about to enter a really long retreat to resource myself more fully. But um, we are going to continue with weekly uh, Dhamma teachings from a number of other bhikkhunis. And you can look on our website, anukampaproject.org slash events for the list of teachings. And you can also sign up to our newsletter through that website. Um, and the links will be there in the newsletter that you can join the Zoom sessions. So. And for all the listeners, those links will be in the description below uh, this uh, podcast. So just look in the links below. Um, now, we, we've learned that you've had this huge and very challenging journey uh, that's brought you to this point of working on the Anukampa Project Startup Bikuni Monastery in the UK. Could you tell us a little bit more about the Anukampa Project? What, what sure. are you aspiring to achieve? Yeah, tell us a bit about okay, that. Okay, great. I guess the first thing we're aspiring to achieve is to have a resource for women where they can take the full ordination and practice and live as bikunis in England or in the UK. So as I say, you know, my journey so far has made it clear that there are very few opportunities. And since leaving Perth, that's become even more obvious. You know, there is just a handful of bikuni monasteries really around the world. And in Perth, there's a huge monastery, relatively speaking, with about 14, I think, bikunis now. Um, but in most parts of the world, you're lucky to have a small temple with one or two nuns. Um, so realistically, we're going to be starting small, but the whole idea is to give people more options because just as for monks, they have not only opportunities to ordain, but also a choice. They can choose the community that suits their own practice at a given time. You know, maybe the teacher they have a particular connection with or members of the community or a particular tradition, a particular schedule, etc. So even though there are a few little places, there's nothing in England and we just need more. 
so that other bhikkhunis can also start to rotate between different monasteries and we can enrich each other and um, learn from each other as well. So I think that's also part of it, to give women a start, but also to uh, contribute to the bhikkhuni sangha, to the opportunities that already ordained women have and increase those opportunities so that they can learn from each other and contribute to one another's communities. I'd like to just ask you about that. Um, there seems to me to be uh, developing uh, like a kind of international bhikkhuni network mm. at this time. Mm -hmm. uh, and it must it must be a fairly tight-knit network. It's not, it's not an enormous number of bhikkhunis. <laughs> uh, what's that like and what's the state of development of that kind of network right I how, mean, how are you supporting each other yeah thank you for that question that's wonderful and it's nice to see that you have that observation because i am starting to feel more um connected to that network i'm probably haven't had as much time as some bikinis to really become a part of it and to engage say in bikini conferences etc because i've been so focused just on surviving in the robes and also trying to establish something in england for that purpose and other purposes. Um, but I have recently been traveling in America a little bit and I've visited a couple of monasteries there. I think I've visited three there now, three or four. And it's really inspiring to see the way people are doing it. And as I say, there's a real difference in the sort of um, culture in each of those monasteries. So it's inspiring to see that, you know, there's not just a one form fits all or a certain way that we're supposed to be or present as female monastics you really can bring your whole self into this holy life you know and understand your own conditioning as it manifests for you so it's really great to go to different places and to have those friendships and a few people in America have said that they'd love to come and stay in England when we have a place and that I can also go there so we can do a little bit of exchange so this really helps with for me it helps to lessen a feeling of over responsibility because sometimes the project can feel like a very heavy burden on my shoulders that I've got to do this for, for me and for people in England. And, you know, it's my place, so I've got all this responsibility. But actually, it's not my place. It's a place for bikinis. And I'm just, you know, in a role whereby I'm trying to help get things started and taking some of the lead in terms of teachings. But um, actually, it's not my place. It's a place for bikini sangha, the bikini sangha as a whole. Hmm. Well, I have to say that this is a very inspiring and worthy project, uh, Venerable. And uh, could you tell us how could people, our listeners, offer support to the Anukampa project? Yeah, thank you. Well, firstly, I guess for me, the most important thing about this project is community on the ground. It's having people around. It's having people to um, benefit from this um, on a regular basis and also to offer support to the bikunis and the residents who live in the monastery. So if you are local to the monastery, you know, if you live in the UK, and if you do like going to monasteries, remember there are bikunis to support. You know, it's not that you're going to get more merit by supporting monks than nuns, or even by supporting nuns than monks. The Buddha said that the greatest merit, the greatest benefit you can have is to support both sanghas, the bhikkhus and the bikunis. That's the best gift of all. So make sure you visit uh, bikunis and ask them what support they need. Sometimes it's help with things like admin. Um, that very much is relevant to us. Websites, anything technical to free up our time so that we can really engage in the practice and take it deeper so we have something truly 
um, truly beneficial to give. You know, if monastics are still in situations where we're working around the clock from not just nine to five, but sometimes seven in the morning till midnight, literally, on trying to set things up, then we're going to be run dry. We're going to be tired and, you know, we're not going to have as much to give. So do try to support monastics wherever you see them in their practice, you know, so that they can uh, really get the blessings, the benefits, the fullest benefits of the holy life. The deeper our practice, the deeper the teachings that we're able to offer. So that's a really wonderful way. Of course, there are also ways to be involved from afar. So you can join the online sessions. That's a great way to get to know you. And also, of course, monetary donations are always very welcome because we're still trying to raise funds for a bigger property in the long run. Well, I have to say this is a very, uh, not just inspiring, but it's a pioneering project. So uh, I think it'd be great to be uh, like a volunteer or even just to donate a few dollars to help support this really worthwhile project. Yeah. Anyway, thank you very much, Venerable Chanda, for sharing your inspiring story with us today. We wish you every success with this important Anukampa project. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sol. It's been wonderful to talk to you, and I really appreciate your questions. <laughs> and your interest and support. Okay, thank you very much. And thank you to all the listeners out there tuning in to Treasure Mountain. I hope Venerable Chanda's story was inspiring for you as it was for me. You can find links to the Anukampa Bikuni project in the description below if you want to find out more about the project or if you'd like to turn, donate to it. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe to the Treasure Mountain podcast via your favourite podcast app so that you can get our next episode in which Venerable Chanda responds to questions about developing resilience and determination and who better to answer those questions. You can find out more about Treasure Mountain and subscribe to our mailing list by going to www.treasuremountain.info and you can follow Treasure Mountain podcast on Facebook just by searching for Treasure Mountain podcast. I'd love to hear your feedback. Who should be our next guest on Treasure Mountain Podcast? What questions would you like answered? Let me know via the contact page on treasuremountain.info or via Treasure Mountain Podcast Facebook page. I hope you'll join us next week with Venerable Chanda as we seek for the treasure within.